Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, which reads, mind you, the prophet wrote this 750 years before Jesus came into the world. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. What a powerful one-two punch in two verses. We did a run-up to this on Sunday morning. We looked back about to verse five or so of chapter eight and, and made our way forward to, to get to where we are tonight and to get to these two verses. If you haven't heard that, it's okay. You, you'll be fine tonight, but you might wanna go back and get you know, the substance behind where we are right now. Don't do it right now. I can see people go on their iPhones going, oh yeah, I'll just listen to that right. Anyway, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 are far more profound to me this year than any time previous. Taking the time to, to dig in, one of the things that we love to do at the Bridge Fellowship is we love the word of God. And we love to really dig and see what it is that God has here that perhaps we missed in those Sunday school stories or those quick read-throughs or those brief encounters with people who, who think they know something about the Bible. We want the Bible to be the Bible. So I wanna sit in these two verses tonight. Before I do, I'll take you back to Sunday. I mentioned that there are two Christmas movies that I love. I love them all, but there are two that stand out. They're at the top of the heap above all others. One is It's a Wonderful Life, and I talked a little bit about that and Jimmy Stewart and his part in that on Sunday. But the other one, not quite as well-known, is called The Homecoming. And it's the very first Christmas special of the Walton family that ended up spawning the series that went on for over a decade. The Homecoming is a story of a Christmas Eve in 1933 in the midst of the Depression where the Walton family was all just waiting because their father, John Sr., had taken a job some hundred miles away from where they were and could only be home on weekends. And on this very snowy Christmas Eve, they were waiting for him to make his way back on long roads, finally to a bus at Charlottetown where he would then make his way home, probably have to hitchhike half the way there. And early in the morning, they're already waiting for his arrival. Early in the day, Olivia, I won't tell you the whole story, but you gotta get this much of it. Olivia Walton and the grandparents were listening to a radio broadcast in which they learned that the bus that he was supposed to be on from Charlottetown had overturned. Many people were in the hospital and one person was dead. So now the wait becomes a completely different thing. 16-year-old John Boy is sent out on an errand to look for his daddy, but can't get through on the icy roads. He finally makes his way back home late at night. It's near midnight. And at close to that point, when, when John Walton still is not home and, and John Boy comes in the door and the kids are on the stairs because they thought it was their daddy, but no, it's John Boy. And, and Ma is out there and Grandma, and they're all just, it's, it's midnight and he's not home. And they have no, no cell phones. It's 1933, no way of finding out where he is, is he in the hospital, what has happened. Meanwhile, another side story going on all through this program is the kids can't wait to go see the miracle. 
That is the old, and it comes actually from uh, apocryphal literature, but the old tale about animals on Christmas Eve, farm animals kneeling down and worshiping miraculously. So they all want to head out to the barn to see the miracle at midnight. Kids are on the stairs. John Boyd's just back in the house. And John Boyd turns to his mother and says, how about you, Mama? Do you want to come see the miracle? Olivia replies, the first miracle I want to see tonight is your daddy walking through that door. Not three minutes later, he did. So I just ruined the ending of the whole movie for you, right there. <laughs> he makes it home. But it struck me, watching it this year hit me for the first time that when Olivia Walton says, the first miracle I wanna see is your daddy walking through that door, she had no idea that that miracle was just seconds away. And that's the thing. You never know when a miracle is just about to happen. You never know when all the darkness and depression and despair and difficulty is about to turn. We can get so stuck in that moment. And the reality is the people who walked in darkness did not know they were just about to see a great light. In fact, they so didn't know that when the great light, the child arrived in Bethlehem in a manger, most had no clue at all. Weren't even ready to believe what was happening in their midst. But the Bible says in Galatians 4, verse 4, when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons in the fullness of time. We might say at exactly the right time, the perfect moment, seconds after we thought the miracle would never come, he came. The same will be true, by the way, of his second coming. We may be seconds away. 10, 15 minutes into this teaching, you may go, I wish that we were seconds away. <laughs> but the truth is the whole entrance of Christ the Lord into the world was a miracle. And what I mean by that is supernatural. See, Isaiah had also written in Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin, and the word is virgin. Don't play with it, don't try and mess around with it. It is what it is. In the Hebrew, it's virgin. In the Greek, which translates from the Hebrew, it's virgin. A virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel, which as Brandy read, Matthew chapter one, verse 23, means God with us. Wow, that is not the common. In fact, in the history of the world, it's only happened once. Where not only was a virgin with child, now some young women may have claimed at some point to be a virgin with child, but not only did it actually happen, but the child was Emmanuel. And you gotta let that sink in. Emmanuel, God with us. The entrance of Jesus into the world was a wonder, an absolute wonder. From the sign of the infant in the manger to the sign of the star resting over the house, even over the head of the child, which I'll explain to you in a minute, it's a wonder, and yet so many missed it. 
They missed it because they weren't looking for it. They missed it because they were so stuck in the doldrums of the darkness that they didn't expect it. And we, by the way, are called to live expectantly. Tell you what, tonight, don't miss it. Don't miss the wonder of what it is we're really celebrating here. Don't let the darkness, don't let the discouragement, don't let the depression of this year, don't let the divisions cause you to miss what God is doing. Because even in the season of COVID, he's doing something here. I don't know about you, but he's been doing an awful lot in my life. I have learned more in the last few months than I (laughs) cared to have learned. But it's been so good. He's at work. I want you to look at this with me. Verse six, for a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. Note that the emphasis is really not on us, but it's on the child, it's on the son. That the focal point is not us. It struck me today that when we focus on the self over the savior, we're always in danger of missing the wonders of God. It's the child who's the issue. The son who is the focus. And so while we as recipients and the Jewish people, Israel, as recipients of the child given to us, the son born to us, though we're recipients and we're eternally blessed by it, the point remains the child born, the son given. And in saying this, note that what Isaiah has just done is given us both a picture of the humanity and the divinity of Emmanuel. The child is born to us. Well, of course. The child, that's his humanity. Born into this world. Wrapped not only in swaddling clothes, but in common human flesh. Back in John 1.14 that, that Les read to us, the word flesh there is the lowest, most common form of the word in the Greek. It's sarks, and it's base flesh. It's just skin, the word put on skin. Like any other baby. And so the angel declared this supernatural enigma in Luke chapter two, verse 11. For today, he said to the shepherds, in the city of David, there's been born for you a savior, Christ the Lord. Savior, awesome. Christ the Lord, awesome. Born to you. He's a baby? He's a child? Yeah. And the child born There's only one like him. There's only one like him ever in all history. There's never been another like him since. There was never one like him before because while he was a child born to us, giving us that ordinary human sense, he also is the son given to us which speaks of his deity. No other has been this way. Psalm 2, verse 7, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. Guess what? That's Jesus talking. And he's saying the decree of the Lord, that is God, is today you are my son. God calling Jesus son. Today, I have begotten you, which is why Jesus is called the only begotten son of God. But Bible students, and this is so critical to our understanding, when was Jesus begotten as the Son of God. It was not at his birth. It was at his resurrection. And the reason you need to understand that is if, it, if he was begotten the Son of God at his birth, then you might even, some might try to, and some have tried, to make a case that Jesus was born 
a created being. And that's not the case. He became the son. He was the begotten son of God in his resurrection because at that point he stepped into the role of the firstborn son which from a Jewish perspective makes perfect sense. It's not about the first one born in flesh. It's the one who takes on the authority, the inheritance, the rights of the father. And he is equal to the father from the Jewish perspective. Well, how do you know what happened at his resurrection? Because Paul told us, Acts 13, verse 33, God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Paul understood. Paul explains and the Bible tells us the begottenness of Jesus becoming at that moment son of God happened in his resurrection. Which means he took the position. Emmanuel. He's always been God. I'll prove that to you in just a minute. But he assumed the position of the son, the heir apparent, the inheritor of the right to rule, all the authority and power thereof in his resurrection from the dead. So in half a verse, we've already learned that the child is Jesus' humanity, that the son speaks of his deity, that he is God. More on that in just a second. And the government will rest on his shoulders, we're told. Now, don't let that go by with recognizing a couple of things. For one thing, I don't want our government resting on my shoulders. <laughs> Having enough trouble with government these days as it is. But in this statement, the government will rest on his shoulders. I want you to think about something. What was on the people's shoulders prior to verse six? Go back and look at verse four. You shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. The people were under a weight, a yoke, a, a harness of burden, a staff across the shoulders, the rod of the oppressors. And we come to verse six and find out the entire government will rest on his shoulders. He will take the oppression off of their shoulders and rest rule and authority on his own shoulders. Hey, what are you shouldering tonight? What are you wearing? What are, what's your burden? What is the weight that is on you? Jesus has authority over it. Jesus has the right to take it off your shoulders, put it on his own, to take it under his governance, and he's not just gonna send you out a temporary stimulus package. You know, they're arguing right now, $600, $2,000, honestly, it's not gonna make much difference one way or the other. Now, you might say, no, 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 go for two. <laughs> but really, at the end of the day, it's money. It's gonna be spent, it's gonna go away. Jesus has much more in his governance. He, he's not playing the political game that so many of our eh, politicians play. No, he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls, his yoke. You want to shoulder something? Shoulder my yoke because it will bring you rest. Luke 15, verse four says, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. Note what he does when he has found it. He lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. 
We were talking earlier today about the fact that there's that, that story that, that tends to go along with this because David said, uh, let me rejoice in, in the bones that you have broken. And so we say, well, you know what a shepherd will do is they'll break the bones, right, of a little sheep that wanders off. They'll break its legs so it can't wander anymore and carry it around on their shoulders until the leg heals. And that, that's true and that's, that's poignant and interesting. What's fascinating to me is in Luke 15, when the good shepherd goes and finds the sheep, it doesn't say anything about breaking his legs. He just puts it on his shoulders and he rejoices. There's no pain. There's no hardship. There's just, I'm so glad I found you. He takes it all on his shoulders. But now, now listen to his names. And his name will be called, interesting, his name in the singular will be called, and then we get a bunch. Wonderful, counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace, but you gotta wait and listen. There is not an adjective in the lot. That every one of these words are nouns. In other words, Every one of these words are names for Emmanuel. By themselves, stand alone, they work. It's not just that he's a wonderful counselor. Oh, he is, but he's wonderful. And he's counselor. It's not just that he's a mighty God. Oh, absolutely, but he's also mighty. And he's God. It's not just that he's eternal and, he's a, and that he's an eternal father. Yes, that's true, but he is eternal by nature, and Father. He's Prince, and he's peace. He's wonderful. Wonderful is the word in the Hebrew, Pele. Pele is the, the nearest word that we have in English to the Hebrew word Pele that we translate wonderful. It's not just wonderful, it's mysteriously wonderful mystically wonderful. In fact, our English word that would come closest is supernatural. Supernatural. And that is Emmanuel's name. This is not just a description. Again, not an adjective. It's not just that he's wonderful Jesus. He's wonderful. He is the epitome, the embodiment of supernatural, of wonderful and of the 80 times that we see the word Pele or variations of it in the Old Testament, the vast majority of times it speaks specifically of the works and the person of God. Pele, wonderful. When Asaph was dispirited, the psalmist, he wrote Psalm 77, 11, I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. Verse 14, you are the God who works wonders. You have made known your strength among the people. So you're the supernatural God who does supernatural things. Why? Because he is supernatural. What I want you to get, even as we go through every name, and we'll do it quickly, but don't miss that the things that come of God are because of who he is. The things he does, he does because that's who he is. For you and me, it's a little different. I, I may sit down with Susie and we may pray together and I might offer her comfort, but it's not because I am comfort. It's, it's because I'm comforting her because I've learned how to do that. God comforts because he is comfort. See what I'm saying? God does supernatural things because pff, that's who he is. He is wonderful. Anybody get to see through the clouds on the 21st and see the Christmas star? 
Did you all hear about the Christmas star in the news? Everybody was very excited about the Christmas star. This is it. This is the one. Hasn't been around for 800 years. The alignment of Jupiter and Saturn. I heard that and I'm like, what is this, the dawning of the age of Aquarius? <laughs> Dating myself a little bit there, but Jupiter and Saturn aligned on the 21st. My parents down in Southern California, clear, clear sky night. My dad's out back taking pictures of it. They were all excited about it. And I, I, was, I was having some fun with them with this, which I won't get into right now. But the Christmas star, that's it. That's what happened at Jesus' birth, right? Jupiter and Saturn aligned. It was unusually bright. And so, oh, that's what they're talking about in the Bible. Were they? Numbers 24, verse 17, one of the earliest birth prophecies or prophecies related to the birth story of Jesus, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob and a scepter shall rise from Israel. Old Balaam, skeevy old Balaam the prophet is the one who said that. We're gonna come to his story, I think, sometime in the new year, Lord willing. But some claim, they look at this whole star story, Jupiter and Saturn aligning, that's got to be it, and that's what the Bible meant. We have to find a logical scientific reason, right, for what happened that the Bible describes that led the Magi from the east to the little town of Bethlehem. Really? Well, let's look at that. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, which says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king... Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, "Um, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and we have come to worship him. Now, so far you could say, well, an alignment of two stars that gets unusually bright and these guys are stargazers. So perhaps they saw that and went, wow, that's the sign of a king. Let's go find out. Maybe, but down in verse nine, it tells us, after hearing the king, They went their way, and the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. By the way, the word child there is a word that you would not use for an infant. It's for a little boy, probably two years old. And they fell to the ground and worshiped him. And then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. So understand that this story was well after the birth of Jesus. This was not the manger scene. Sorry to mess those up for you. He's a child, not an infant now. And the Greek distinction is obvious. And the star was not part of the manger scene over the shepherd's fields. The star shows up two years later. The Magi come two years later, which is why in our manger scene at home, I put the Magi over on the other side of the table because they're just on their way. (laughs) They're not there yet. And my wife thinks I'm so weird. And (laughs) let me just ask you this, though. Be logical with me for a moment about the star. When was the last time you gave directions to your home by telling someone, just follow the star? I mean, how accurate is that? How accurate could it possibly be? I'll even give you that wise men from the east saw it to the west and followed and came that direction. But to say that Jupiter and Saturn aligned so perfectly and so immediately above the house of the child is ridiculous. It's not normal. It's uncommon. Oh, wait, it's wonderful. It's supernatural. 
it was a supernatural star, my friends. How close would Jupiter and Saturn have to be to land the Magi at the right address? Star of Bethlehem had to be a wonderful thing, miraculous and supernatural, just like the child whose location it identified. Charles Spurgeon said, we believe it to have been a luminous appearance in midair, probably something akin to that which led the children of Israel through the wilderness. There's a thought. Adam Clark said, this is more literally stood over the head of the child. I find that fascinating. It says in the Bible that when you read it, it stood over the place where the child was, but the place is added in italics. It's not in the original language. And so Adam Clark, Bible scholar, says, if you're literally translating it, they came and they saw the star that stood over the head of the child. Which ultimately gave rise to the idea back in ancient and medieval art of the halo because that's how they read it. They accepted it and believed it to be supernatural. Therefore, they made supernatural drawings of a light above the baby's head. Now, again, I'm not trying to mess up anyone's manger scene or bust your Bethlehem bubble, but understand we need to refuse to take anything away from the wonderful supernatural glory of God's hand in this story. Instead of trying to rationalize it or, or, you know, make it work in the natural world, our God is supernatural. This birth was supernatural. And that's vital to get because the glory is to him, not to the star, not to the alignment of Jupiter and Saturn. No, the birth of Jesus was as supernatural as Seraph's song. It was as miraculous as the Magi's map. <laughs> which was a star in motion. So he's wonderful like that, supernatural by nature. He's also counselor, yoetz in the Hebrew. Isaiah 28 verse 29 says he has made his counsel wonderful and his wisdom great. Let me ask you tonight, who's your go-to counselor? Who do you seek for wisdom and advice and understanding? In this or any season, when you don't know what to do or where to turn or how to think about a thing, do you go to a psychologist? Do you go to a friend, a blogger, a pastor? Who do you go to? You have a supernatural counselor. You have a counselor who is wonderful and he is immediate. And he, right now, I don't know what to do, Lord, and he's there. And his wisdom is superb. Colossians 2 verse 2 says, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.30, by his doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. We're in Christ and in Christ is wisdom. You need wisdom? You need counsel and understanding to get through this time of life? He's right here. You might say, well, I've prayed to him and I don't hear an answer. Then go to his word. Because I promise you, the more that you are in his word, the more you will learn to hear him. And the more consistent you'll be in understanding what he has to say. He's wonderful and he's counselor and he's mighty God. Now I'm gonna take those two together, although they are both nouns and he is mighty. Intrinsically, innately, that's Jesus but he's also God, intrinsically, innately. That's Jesus. And yet, 
We're going to take them together because this is spoken as a name in other places. The name is El Gabor. El Gabor, mighty God. Yes, he's both, but you take them together because Isaiah calls Messiah mighty God in one more place. And it's a place that is related to the future of Israel. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 21, a remnant will return. The remnant of Jacob to El Gabor, to the mighty God. But get this, don't miss this. This is the child born. This is the son given. He is the mighty God. Jesus is not God Jr. Like little Christmas Eve, little God coming along, looks like God, so we call him son of God. No, that's not it. He's not the spitting image of the old man. That would be me. <laughs> if you've seen a picture of my dad, you know what I'm saying. In fact, I think these days my dad is actually looking better than I am in his 80s. I don't know how that works. <laughs> Jesus is not an underling. Jesus is not a subordinate. Jesus is not inferior. Jesus is, Emmanuel is mighty God. He is El Gabor. And for anyone who says or tries to claim Jesus is less than God, you take him to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, and say the Hebrew prophets knew who Emmanuel was. They knew who Jesus is. And I, I, this is so important because when we grasp this, when we actually begin to understand that Jesus really is God, it changes everything. I can no longer separate God of the Old Testament with Jesus of the New. I have to take the whole awesome, wonderful package of who he is, his full self-expression, and his full self-expression, by the way, the Bible tells us, is Jesus. He is the expression of the Father. He is the exact representation, Hebrews chapter one tells us. He's God exemplified, John chapter one tells us. He is God. Man, once I get that, I actually begin to step out of the blissful ignorance of saying that Jesus was just a wise teacher or Jesus was just a prophet or even a magic man. This guy who somehow figured out how to work some miracles. No, he is wonderful, supernatural. He is counselor, perfect wisdom. He is mighty God in and of himself. And you know what? Even his enemies got it. Do you realize that's why they crucified him? Because they said he's making himself equal with God and they couldn't handle that. I mean, there's a rabbi quoted by Philip Yancey. And, and, and Yancey said this, this rabbi said he loved Jesus, he loved the teachings of Jesus, he liked everything learned about Jesus until Jesus equated himself with God, then Jesus went too far. And then he couldn't listen anymore. And it blows my mind how many Christians in the world still don't get the divinity of Jesus. Can I pray? I've, I've said this to you all before. Can I pray, dear Jesus in heaven, is that okay? Will that offend the Father? No, because Jesus is God. And the Father is glorified by the Son, and the Son is glorified in the Father, and the Spirit glorifies both. And it, there's no issue in the Trinity of who's above who. Jesus is God. Titus 2, verse 11, Paul said, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. And then Paul says this, looking for the blessed hope 
and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul, do you think Jesus is God? Paul would say, not only do I, but Isaiah does too. El Gabor, mighty God. And he's eternal. Oh, I know, eternal father, but eternal is a noun unto itself. The word is odd in the Hebrew, not O-D-D, but A-D, odd. And it's not just his age, it's his nature. He's eternal. That is to say, Emmanuel coming into the world had already been and would forever be. Daniel calls him the Ancient of Days. This is one who has always existed And that's why I told you about the begottenness was his resurrection because it's not that he was begotten as in born and beginning and existence. Jesus has always existed. He's always been. How do you know? Because he's eternal. And the Hebrew word eternal is very clear. It goes both ways. I remember the first time I really tried to grapple with that and it kept me up night as a kid going, okay, I can almost fathom the idea of living forever. But having always existed without beginning is just (laughs) mind-blowing. That's Jesus. He's always been. So the Bible says, Psalm 41, 13, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. And Jesus said, Revelation 1, 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And if that's too pie in the sky for you, listen. We'd all do really well to think more eternally. We don't think eternally in this world. We think immediately. We think temporally. We think what's happening right now, and this is the struggle, and this is the issue, and all of our, we get sucked into this vortex of the immediate, and if we would learn to think with eternal perspective, we would be so much less limited. We'd have so much more perspective to be long-term and eternal in our thinking. And Jesus is by nature eternal. He just is, because he's always been. Emmanuel, and he always will be, and he's father. Father. The noun form here is Abi. You've heard it before, Abba. He is Ad Abba. (laughs) Now, my kids have called me that, Odd Dad, but this is eternal father, the Abba who is forever. I, I love being in Jerusalem One of my favorite things is being just downtown Jerusalem in the old city square, sitting there having a falafel and listening to the kids. Because they run by and you'll invariably hear them every day. You will hear little Jewish kids going, Abba, Abba, chasing down their dad. First time I heard that, I went, Abba. That kid's singing a worship song. What's going on here? It's just daddy, Abba. And here in the midst of this wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal Abba, eternal dad. Isaiah 63, 16 says, for you are our father. Though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not recognize us because as great as they were, they were human and they were not from eternity. But he says, you, O Lord, are our Father. Our Redeemer from of old is your name, Father, Abba, Dad. And there are far too many human beings who have a deep father wound. A hole, because Dad was not 
what you needed. And you know, probably his dad wasn't what he needed. Or dad was hurtful or dad was absent. And right here with eternal, we have Abba. And this is the, the, the absolutely amazing reality is it doesn't really matter where you've been or what your family situation is like. Abba's here. That father wound he heals, that father hole he fills, that father need, he is father. You know, well, I don't understand him because my father was so, forget about your father, he is father. Understand his love and compassion for you. Romans 8.14 says, all who are being led by the spirit of God, these are sons of God. You've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And you know what the beautiful thing of, of adoption is? Adoption is never by mistake. Now, I love all my biological kids. I cannot tell you that all my biological kids were planned. <laughs> Hannah, you were, so you're good to go. But, but, and surprises are wonderful and we're good to go and, and love all our kids. But I'll tell you what, and I've, I've told my, my three adopted kids this and I've, I've told Christopher this and he's, we're still waiting, working on this. They're chosen. We chose to adopt them. And brothers and sisters, your Abba chose to adopt you. Man, let that fill the hole. Let that encompass what perhaps was a father wound. You have Ad Abi. You have a forever dad. And by the way, we're still talking about Emmanuel. We're still talking about Jesus is your eternal father. He said to the Pharisees, John 8, 19, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you'd know my father. He says in John 14, verse nine, he who has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? In the words I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. That's not some bizarre spiritual esoteric thing. That is Jesus saying, God in me, because I'm God. His nature, as we're talking about here, is eternal Father. And by the way, he's disciplining some of his kids this season. I know because I'm one of them. He's teaching us. Jesus is the one who said, Revelation 3.19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. Because that's what a father does. He loves his kids too much to let them just do whatever. There is discipline involved. And some of us are being disciplined in this season. You might wanna stop and ask him, is it me? Am I being disciplined here, Lord? Am I missing what you're trying to teach me right now? If, if so, may we repent and return so that we might rest in our Father's arms. Boy, at this pace, we're barely gonna make it by Christmas. Wonderful, counselor, mighty God, eternal Father, Prince. The word is Sar. Now, I know, we always say Prince of Peace, Prince of Peace, but stop right there, though, Sar. There are different Hebrew words for prince. There's Nagid, there's Nasi, and there's Sar. Sar, what it indicates is a prince as a direct representative of the king. 
This is a prince who has the right and the authority to sign off on all things. The king has said whatever he says is good. So this prince is the one who bears the full administrative authority of the king who carries out the administration of the coming kingdom. He's the administrator. That's why Ezekiel talks about Jesus, talks about Emmanuel as the prince. That's why Daniel mentions that he is Messiah, the prince, because he's the one who's gonna administrate. And in all of his administration, because he is intrinsically, innately, naturally prince, not the artist who used to be known as prince, he is prince and he is peace. Shalom. And this is perhaps the most important because this singular noun is not just what he brings, it's who he is. He is peace. The word in the Hebrew, you know it. Shalom. Sar Shalom, prince of peace. Or you might even say prince and peace because he encapsulates both. Luke chapter two, verse 14. Glory to God in the highest, the angels saying, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. And people go, great, where's the peace? This was supposed to bring peace. It stuns me every Christmas season when I hear artists, you know, like, I don't know, who's got a recent Christmas album out? I've stopped even counting. Here's someone like Beyonce singing a Christmas song. And I don't know what her faith is. I don't know what she believes. I, some things I would question. But, but here, do you know of whom you sing? Do you, they sing these songs, and these songs about this baby born in a manger, and oh, how he's gonna bring peace on earth, and it's never happened. It's a fairy tale, if that's all that's, there is to it. It's a fairy tale. It's a cute little story. So let's, on Christmas Eve, we'll put a manger scene out. And isn't that cute? Isn't that fun? Doesn't really mean anything because in the real world, we know how bad it is. And to make matters worse, Jesus said, Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I love this. Prince of peace. You know, on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Jesus says, oh no, I didn't come to bring peace. Excuse me, Lord. And he says, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Wow. Okay, something's really messy here. And if you look ahead, as we did a little bit on Sunday morning, and read Revelation 19, and read about the return of Jesus, ain't no peace there either. Bloodshed up to the horse's bridle. Robes dipped in blood. Blood and burning it. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's a horrible, the whole picture of the bloodshed of Armageddon. If you read that, if you look at world history, you go, okay, peace among men on whom his favor rests. Peace on earth. Prince of peace. How does that work? Listen, we will know in the coming kingdom. We will know peace like we have never known peace. The world will be at peace like it has never been at peace. Why? Because Sar Shalom will be in charge. The prince who is peace. And again, he is peace in and of himself. But here's the thing. Jesus knew that peace would not be the human response to his coming. He came to bring peace, but that would not be the response. Why? 
Because though the light shines in the darkness, the darkness does not get it. The darkness doesn't comprehend it. The darkness pushes back. Think about it. When you flip on the lights after watching a movie, what do you do? You recoil a bit because your eyes have grown accustomed to the dark. So Jesus, the great light, as he's called early in Isaiah chapter 9, the great light comes into a very dark world and people recoiled. And even to this day, the mention of his name around a holiday table will bring consternation in some of your families, guaranteed. So you might remember if you say, hey, you guys want to talk about Jesus? Oh, man, you're bringing him up again? I did not come to bring peace but a sword. He is peace. He promises peace. Peace will come to the earth. But right now, the darkness doesn't want it. So peace wasn't the response of the world, but it is the result of the Prince of Peace when he comes in his kingdom, when he comes in his authority. Victor Buxbazen says, shalom, speaking of this word, is not merely the absence of war and strife. It actually means, to the Hebrew, prosperity and harmony within and without and well-being and peace in the heart and peace with God. As a matter of fact, just listen to the prophet Micah as he declares Micah chapter five, verse two. As for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from days of eternity, that's Emmanuel. Therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has born a child and then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel and he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. This one will be shalom. Because that's who he is. Why does Jesus offer peace? Because Jesus is peace. And as you come to know Jesus, peace is a byproduct because you can't be around Jesus and not experience peace. It's who he is. You trust him. You accept his rule, his authority over your life, and you will know peace, even now. See, that's the beautiful thing. Peace will come to this earth. Planet Earth will experience a thousand years of perfect peace under Prince Peace, Sar Shalom. But until then, you don't have to wait for it. You can have peace tonight. Perfect peace with God through Christ. Jesus said, John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Well, let me finish up here. Where are we? Isaiah chapter nine, verse seven says, and there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. This is an ongoing thing. It just gets more and more peaceful. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. My friends, this is by the lineage of David. The throne of David, the promise God made, and you can read it, look it up. Second uh, Samuel 7 or 1 Samuel 7? You remember? 1 Samuel 7, read it. God promises David, I'm gonna build you a house the line of David, and I'm gonna set one on your throne who is eternal, who is forever. That's Jesus. 
And so here we are again on the throne of David and over his kingdom, this established throne. God's gonna do this by his promise. It's called the Davidic covenant. Don't need to remember that right now. But again, made a thousand years before Jesus arrived, God told David, I'm gonna do this. And so Isaiah's affirming it. But then he says he's gonna establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. No more inquiries. No more special counsel. No more investigations. I, maybe I shouldn't say this, but I just get so sick of the political investigations. I just want it to be done. New president comes in, what do they do? They start investigating immediately. They try to find out, is there any possible way? Instead of supporting the good things, it's always, let's find out if we can get him knocked out. And it's special counsel after special counsel after special counsel for crying out loud, Jesus is gonna come and he's gonna uphold his kingdom with justice and righteousness, which means everything will be just and it's gonna be absolutely right, praise the Lord. The promise of an everlasting, ever-increasing peace, which now must come. It's got to happen. Here's the good news tonight. Here's the wonder of Christmas. It has to happen. The ball's rolling. The juggernaut cannot be stopped. This promised kingdom, this peace, this Emmanuel must return and do this. Why? Because the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And I love that. The zeal. That, that is wonderful. The zeal of the Lord of hosts, this word zeal is the only, the word is only used of God in the Bible. It is not used for anybody else. It is not about anybody else. It is God, and the root word of zeal is kana, which you Bible students may recall is jealous. The jealousy of God is gonna do this. But I point out that it's only used of God because this word is not jealousy like we think of ourselves being jealous. Our jealousy is self-centered and self-serving. His jealousy is innate. It is essential who he is passion for his people, for you, for me. He says in Exodus 34, 14, you shall not worship any other God for the Lord whose name is Kana, whose name is jealous. And here it is again, the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. He is jealous. That's his nature. I don't like the sound of that. That's because you're thinking about it in human terms. He's not jealous like we're jealous. He's jealous like only he can be jealous, which is over-the-top passionate for his people. There, there are not words tonight to describe how radical, how over-the-top, how passionate his love really is for you. So we say the zeal of the Lord is gonna do this because that's as close as we can get. How do we know that that's what this zeal is talking about, the love of God for us? Well, the greatest proof came in the most wonderful package of a child born to us, a son given to us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. My friends, tonight we are on the verge of a miracle. Don't miss that for everything happening in the news and in the world around us. Tonight, 
We are on the verge of a miracle. And here's the thing about miracles. You never know when they're about to happen. And that's how we're invited to live. Will this wonderful miracle be in two minutes, 10 minutes, half an hour, a couple of days? Will it be a week, a month, a year? I don't know. He, he hasn't told me. And if you think he's told you, read your Bible. <laughs> but I know this, at any time, and I've said over and over across the years here at the bridge, every single thing that the Bible has prophesied that must take place before Jesus calls his people out has already happened. There's nothing left that has to take place. There were things even in our generation, early on in our generation, Israel had to be back as a nation because so much prophecy had to be fulfilled and wasn't when there was no Israel. It's like, well, the Bible says that has to happen. So people would say, well, then how imminent can his return be if Israel doesn't even exist? And the Bible says Israel has to exist. <laughs> Israel's been existing now for over 70 years. We're in overtime. And we're waiting. And my friends, when it gets dark, don't forget this. A miracle is just about to happen. In a moment, 1 Corinthians 15, 52, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. You know what that's like? That's like children in the wee hours of Christmas morning. I don't know about you, I was a whacked out kid usually by about 4 a.m., having gotten no sleep, Christmas music playing on the radio all night long, going, how long, oh, Lord, how long must I wait? And it strikes me that that's the heart of the follower of Jesus. We're in the wee hours in the morning. It's about to dawn. And I don't know when, and I'm not trying to freak anybody out, but I'll tell you what, I expect that Emmanuel, who is wonderful, who is counselor, who is mighty, and who is God, who's eternal, who's father, who is prince, and who is peace. I expect him to come at any time. Merry Christmas. He's the whole point. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you've given us a, a snapshot tonight of you. It doesn't even scratch the surface but it truly is, Lord, paradigm shifting when we realize that these are not just adjectives to describe something about you, but they are who you are. That we have just delved into hearing about your very nature. God, you do wonderful things because you are wonderful. You give us all that we need for life and godliness because you are counselor. And when our strength is gone and we are absolutely weak, you are mighty. When everyone else around us in human flesh has let us down, you're God. When I don't have the strength to go another day, you are eternal. When I need to be held and reassured and disciplined, you are Father. When I need to know someone's gonna oversee all this and make it right, you're prince. And Lord Jesus, when I am striving and straining and struggling in this world, you are peace. And I thank you for your word to us. Lord, let it wash over us tonight. 
And we pray that you would be blessed and honored even as we turn to you in Jesus' name. Amen.